You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. Ladies and gentlemen, you're very welcome to the Long Room Hub. Uh, my name is Peter Crooks, uh, and it's my uh, privilege, really, to be coordinating this multi-annual lecture series from the Long Room Hub, Out of the Ashes, Collective Memory, Cultural Loss and Recovery. And this is the second year of a three-year series uh, that's running at the Hub, uh, connecting with a project that I'm directing uh, called Beyond 2022 that looks forward to, uh, it's now only about a thousand days away, the centenary of our uh, disaster, the fire of 1922, and the cultural loss that this country experienced then. And with this lecture series, what we are seeking to do is to place that event uh, in its widest possible context, globally, chronologically, and so on. So we have three years of lectures. Last year, our theme was collecting and collections, the power of collecting, the social, uh, symbolic power of the great collections of the world. And the lectures took us right away from the ancient library of Alexandria, rebuilt in, uh, in contemporary times, up to uh, the world of uh, Google's meta collections. And we went back into the Middle Ages, which is my area, uh, to the Anglo-Saxons and the uh, uh, British Library collections. And then we finished the year with the uh, collection of Timbuktu that was threatened. The Timbuktu manuscripts were threatened uh, uh, within the last uh, decade. Uh, by conflict and now also by environmental damage in uh, the, the Sahel. This year the theme uh, is more directly moving from collecting to destroying before we move towards recovering in year three. These themes are all intertwined but in the coming uh, year we'll hear about the museum in Brazil which you know was uh, tragically destroyed. We'll hear about the Kenyan migrated archive, which you may or may not know is an extraordinary story of how these post-colonial archives were brought out of Kenya at the time of decolonization and uh, hidden, as it were, uh, uh, from view until brought into the public light uh, recently. Um, and we'll also be looking at our own 1922 uh, experience uh, later this year itself. But today's theme, uh, connecting a number of those uh, uh, subjects, is looking at recovering a different type of archive. And this is something that I'm very keen to do. My own project is specifically an archival project, an archival recovery project, but we want to think about the historical records, the experiences of the past, and how we remember in as wide a way as possible. And so in exploring a different type of archive, our speakers tonight, and we will have two speakers, are looking at an archive of testimonies recovered from the voices of ordinary people. So the archives that are usually uh, hidden or forgotten or suppressed uh, by history and that we have to work extra hard against the grain to bring out. Um, we'll have two speakers as I say. Uh, our main speaker is Professor uh, Sucheta Mahajan from uh, uh, JNL uh, in New Delhi, Professor of History there uh, and visiting the Long Room Hub uh, this semester uh, where she's working on a biography of Gandhi's last years. Uh, but um, our speakers, author of Independence and Partition, The Erosion of Colonial Power in India, and that title alone tells you how this uh, expertise connects very directly with issues that are extremely topical, topical uh, at present. Um, Professor Mahishan's 
Uh, fields of interest span the 20th century, uh, its politics, political, political economy and social change, but also more specifically on a theme that will be emerging in tonight's lecture, the oral history of independence, of freedom and partition. So that will be uh, a paper that will last uh, about 45 minutes. And then uh, I'll ask uh, um, Anna Bryson, Dr. Anna Bryson, senior lecturer from Queen's, uh, who uh, works on a complementary area within a, a, an Irish context, to respond to that for about 10 minutes. And then we'll open up the uh, um, discussion to the floor, and I hope we'll have a very lively discussion. I'll introduce Anna properly closer to the paper. If I do it now, I'll be uh, doing an injustice to all those achievements. So I'll, I'll pop up again momentarily. Just to say that the lecture tonight is being podcast, and there's a growing archive of these lectures on the Trinity Longham Hub web pages, which I encourage you to look at if you missed any of last year's. It's fascinating to see those themes emerging as a sort of narrative in themselves. We're also on Twitter this evening. Uh, if you want to join the conversation that way, the Twitter handle is at TLR Hub, and the hashtag is hashtag Hub Matters. So uh, either through the Twitter sphere or through the Q&A later, I hope you will uh, join the conversation. Uh, but now, please uh, join me in welcoming our first speaker this evening, Professor Susheta Mahajan. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, uh, Peter. It's really a privilege to be here, back, I would say, at the Long Room Pub, which is really, for me now, a home away from home. And this is a moment when I would like to thank Jane Olmeyer for all that she has done to make us so comfortable here over the years and the uh, and evolving a space where an exchange of ideas is possible in a way one never thought was going to be possible in the Western world, you know. But uh, thank you so much. Um, well, um, I just need help for just one minute from Frank. If you just press the space bar, you know. The space bar, that's all? Mm -hmm. Okay, sorry. That's it, okay, fine. Okay. Um, well, I'll just begin with two images. As you can see, nothing much to explain. Um, Gandhi, on 15th August, he was nodded in, in De New Delhi. He was no not part of any celebrations. He was sitting uh, on fast, consoling victims of communal violence in Calcutta. And then, of course, Nehru from the Red Fort of Delhi announcing freedom. Just to get a sense of the fact that independence came, but along with it, partition, two very contradictory realities. For a historian buried in the colonial archive, and the written word. What is going beyond the archive mean? For me, it has meant a journey into the domain of oral history, or what we sometimes call memory work. And I have found that it has been, it is particularly apposite, this domain of oral history or memory work, to recover the voices of those, in our case, two groups of people, those who worked actively in the freedom struggle, and then, of course, the voices of the survivors of the partition. Recovering these voices often entails 
amplifying the voice of those historically silenced. And this can also be in the case of the voices of freedom, because very often we only hear the story from the point of view of Mountbatten, Nehru, Gandhi, but not what it felt like on the ground in the village. History is much politicized in India. If you think it's politicized in Ireland, just take a break. It is at the center of the entire debate between right-wing and liberal secular forces at present. When the right-wing regimes come to power, the first thing they do is they change the textbooks. Storytelling and oral testimonies then can provide a powerful platform for remembering and forgetting this dialectic, I'll come to in a while, these contested narratives. In this presentation, I look at the interface between memory and history, and I find that memory sometimes intertwines with history, creating a burden somewhere, lifting the veil elsewhere. In the fascination today with memory, memory work, memory studies, memory, sometimes gets set up and this is something which is difficult for a historian, as a kind of binary to history. The kind of statement which Aga Shahid Ali in a very famous poem <laughs> called Farewell had written, my memory is again in the way of your history. Now that sentiment comes across very often today in the writings on partition. History gets presented as the meta-narrative, as history with a big H. And memory is presented with a small m as an expression of the small voice often marginalized. The writing on memory and history in the context of partition has usually seen the two as counterposed to each other. Gyanendra Pandey, one of our very fine historians, would have it that there is a wide chasm between the historian's apprehension of 1947 and what we might call a more popular survivor's account of it, between history and memory as it were. I hope in the course of this presentation to break this idea of history versus memory and make it a little more complex. I explore the transformative role of memory in transcending the divide between the communities locked in the conflict that define the partition of India. Oral history initiatives in India, and there are many of them, are giving a new meaning to memory work, orienting it to showing a way out of trauma to bring about a closure. Speaking histories, this is just an advertisement for one of these archives, which I'll come to in a while. One of the propositions that I hope to be able to advance today considerably is as follows, that while memory of conflict can be disabling, it can imprison the victim and the perpetrator in remembered histories of violence and trauma. That's the story we get normally from the Holocaust archive. Yet, I would argue that testimonies can be collected in a way that has the potential of overcoming the binary of a victim perpetrator in order to fashion a post-trauma survivor who could be from either community. In the course of this, some questions <coughs> came up 
which I'm just listing very quickly. Two modes of remembering differ between societies and why. Is silence the strategy of the survivor or is it imposed by the state as many historians on partition in India would have us believe? And lastly, but not leastly, least, is the paradigm of the Holocaust limiting for other sites of conflict, as for instance, in the colonial context. Sites where, I argue, the distinction between perpetrators and victims is not so black and white, in the sense that a perpetrator in one place, from coming from one community, could often be the victim, a person from that community in another context. But before I go into this whole very vexed issue of the oral histories of partition, let me take a look at a somewhat more simpler, if I can call it that, account of the recovery of the voices of freedom. This takes me back to the mid-80s when some of us at the JNU in Delhi began to collect oral histories of the national movement, conscious the time was running out. People were getting old and nobody was recording their testimonies. These interviews spanning the years 1984 to 87 covered a fairly wide swathe of India from Kerala, Tamil Nadu and Andhra Pradesh in the south to Maharashtra and Gujarat in the west, Uttar Pradesh, in the north, Punjab and Bihar also in the north. Testimonies of hundreds of freedom fighters were collected. This oral history project was not located in a studio or an archive as is often the case. It was literally a field project. Our team traveled across the country by bus, train, <coughs> rickshaw, cycle rickshaw that is. I recall our stay in villages, sleeping on the floor, or in shabby pensions, eating bananas and bread in Suryapet in Telangana, or sometimes being royally hosted by freedom fighters who had now turned prosperous landowners, as for example was often the case in coastal Andhra, in, again in the south of India. Now something which is from the point of view of the practice of oral history, those of you who are interested would find this part important. We very quickly, we found that we had relegated the questionnaire to the back of our head, put it back in our bags, as it were, and we evolved what was called the life story approach, which we later on found was something which many others were using. There were many reasons for this, and I'll just take up very quickly two of them. One is that memory was very sharp for early childhood. Something if you talk to a physician, he will tell you this is borne out by medical science, that even people with dementia, Alzheimer's, etc., or just forgetting after an age, you may not remember where you've left your bunch of keys, but you remember in vivid detail down to the smell of a particular locality that you might have held your first, given your first speech in, or where you might have been arrested at age 16. And so that vividness of your memory is very great in early childhood. The second is what I'm calling that you can avoid the fallacy of hindsight. And this for me has been very important. Um, that is when you 
go with a set of questions to a respondent and you ask them a question. Okay, now, what did you do in 1942? Where were you when Gandhi gave his speech? What were you doing in the movement? He will very often give you a stock answer. If he's a communist, he will give you the party line. That is an ideological line. But if you take the person back into childhood and start the process of what is called remembering, very, very literally, and then take a person through from childhood, okay, where were you born? What did your parents do? Okay, and then when he recounts his story or she recounts her story, you find she is giving you the story closer to as it actually happened, rather than as it has been recalled. Because hindsight and looking back on something with, in a flashback way, brings in all kinds of distortions in which your sentiments about something, think about it, I often used to compare or think about partition of India a bit like a divorce, you know, because we regret it till today. So you, you know, you go to India and to Pakistan and you say it shouldn't have happened. So it's a bit like, you know, you go back to divorce and you're trying to find out, okay, now, were we in love the day we went to the Taj Mahal? Oh, yes, we were, you know? What could, we, what could we have done to have avoided this? So a lot of these biases, distortions, which are coming in later, these can be avoided. Very interestingly, when I was looking at the Irish Troubles, and I'm so happy that Anna is here, who is an authority on these, I found that the, some of the, this is a quote from Hackett and Hallstrom, who have written about the oral histories of the Troubles, who've written about how the life story method was something which was very much adopted here. And exactly what we felt, they said that we also began by taking up specific events. August 1969, attacks on Catholic homes, hunger strikes of 1980, etc. But as the project progressed, we began to adopt a life story approach asking people about their early years and moving the interview through their life. Perhaps the most interesting project today, which is uh, based in Berkeley, but it's being run across India, Pakistan, and all over South Asia, is something known as the 1947 Partition Archive, a recent digital initiative. They are very conscious of this. I'm quoting from Gunita Bhalla, the founder of this project, who writes, she said, we record their whole story. The interview always ends, and she's stressing the other end. I'm stressing that you begin with the beginning. And she's telling you why it's important to take them through to where they are today. So they're brought back to today, to how they had the strength to carry on. There's a cathartic element so they start talking about it more. I've seen some of them come out and write memoirs. I think people felt that nobody cared, especially in the villages. It's very empowering to have somebody listen to their story, 
Today, this archive boasts of hundreds of volunteers. Have they have recorded more than 5,500 testimonies in 12 languages across 22 different countries? Shows you also the size of the Indian diaspora. You know, they advertise, students go in and, you know, become interns. And uh, for six weeks, this is a photograph from an exhibition which they had put up in a metro station uh, in New Delhi, which was again, you know, so you can see the range of stuff that they do. Coming back to our oral history project of the, on the Voices of Freedom, I would never forget an oral history interview I did in Guntur in South India in the summer of 1984. The lady we interviewed, she was frail, she was very old, she sat in a small unkempt room and she told us about how when she was a young girl of about 11, she went for a meeting which was addressed by Gandhiji. And I, many of you may not know this, but Gandhi always said in the beginning of a meeting, I am a banya, I am a trader, I want, I'm going to get money out of you. He used to kind of make a joke out of this and that he would always appeal for funds. And she was so inspired that she took off her gold bangles and she gave them. As we recorded her life story, one by one, members of her family came and sat in the room. This included her son, who had not spoken to her in years in anger at her having given away her land to the movement led by Gandhiji. She broke down, overwhelmed at her newfound status in the family as someone who mattered, not because of what she had done, but because outsiders like us found her story to be of merit. Shanta, our interpreter, Parvati Amma and I, we huddled together and held each other close and we wept in joy. Parvati Amma's recounting of her past, her story, had restored agency to her. Another very interesting aspect where what Peter said in the beginning about uh, the nature of oral archives comes in is that oral history is oral testimony is particularly suited for certain types of information, certain types of history. For example, two such aspects of the freedom struggle we found about which you can't get material easily in the colonial office was mobilization for the movement, that is how do people mobilize, and the strategy of the movement. About activities, you can get a lot. Now, about mobilization, for example, funds we found were raised at the grassroots. Say there was going to be a meeting in a village, so a person, the youngsters would just go around literally with a box and get small contributions, sometimes even in kind, getting flour, getting rice, or getting dal. And meetings, the simple street corner meetings, were the main form of mobilization for the movement. It was very much bottom-up rather than top-down mobilization. This was very important because it questioned the entire historiography, particularly coming from the left, about the money bags which financed the Congress. There was a whole writing about how Birla and Tata and others, you know, controlled the Congress. So this was very interesting. It brought this out. The second aspect, as I said, was about strategy. Some of the best understanding of how the movement worked, we got from 
activists who were in the villages. For example, Madhavlal Pandya, this I remember interviewing him in a small, he was a taluka level leader, that means a kind of block level leader in Khera district in Gujarat. And he described the strategy of the freedom movement, which one of our professors has described as struggle, true struggle after years of reading Gandhi. And look what this guy says. He says, Lado means struggle. Jo mile solo, take what is given. Bhogo means utilize it. Phir lado. So that idea that there are, you know, the movement is a discontinuous movement where you struggle and then you go in for a truce and then you again prepare the ground for another struggle. It was like put forward by him in such a simple way which we would never have found. As I said, it took years for um, a very fine historian to work it out through reading all uh, the manifestos of the Congress <laughs> and the writings of Gandhi. But he had this instinctive kind of sense of it. Another aspect where we found that oral testimonies gave us a huge amount of information which was not covered by colonial records was the assistance of government officials to the movement, particularly at the lower levels of the police and administration. So many interviews spoke about how they had been helped by government officials. They had been told that you are going to be arrested on some such day. Um, there was an account of how a very senior, the Home Secretary of the Government of India, giving his car to a woman activist in the underground movement and giving her safe passage out of Bombay presidency, you know, uh, and this was something which was recorded. And of course, funds came in, you know, and that is all. In fact, in my book, which Peter very kindly referred to, the one on the erosion of colonial power in India, I found that there was a lot I got from oral testimonies on the whole issue of how the process of erosion of authority takes place. Just an example of officials speaking about how did non-violence create a problem? Like, why, what kind of a dilemma, how they found themselves on the horns of a dilemma about how to deal with non-violent movements. And what was this dilemma that they explained? The dilemma was, if you don't act, if you don't arrest the person, the other officials and the loyalists, the people who support the government, they would get very demoralized. Oh, the government is weak, they would feel. But if you took strong action, then the liberals, the ones who thought, you know, the government should be liberal, they were the ones, they would get alienated and horror of horrors, <coughs> inquiries into this repression would start off when the Congress formed ministries. So again, this is, I think, something very interesting. How the range of material or certain aspects of the movement which we don't find covered in the colonial record by their very nature, we are able to get an insight into this. Moving on to the oral histories of partition. At that time, again, interestingly, in fact, in the 1990s, this was around the time of the 50th anniversary of India's freedom and partition. So must have been 1997. 
there was a lot of interest in partition. Um, the case being made by those who took up these oral histories of partition, their argument was that so far the nation has only been celebrating independence. But the dirges of partition, they argued, had been drowned in these celebratory anthems of freedom. And the argument was that this was deliberate. And why was this deliberate? Because the state did, which looked upon the women as our women, the women who suffered during partition, our nation, our women, and the state didn't come across very well in what was happening. This is one of the ladies, Mrs. Swani in Amritsar, who was interviewed as part of this project on the oral histories. Many feminist writers, Urvashi Butalia and Menon and Basin being them, the argument, as I just said, was that the Indian government post-independence, they argued, was both communal and patriarchal in the manner in which it executed the recovery of abducted women. Now, abducted women, I don't know if you know this, but other than the killings, there were about 90,000 odd women who were abducted, forced marriages, etc. at that time. And once things settled a bit, there was a government initiative from both sides of the border with army, liaison officers, social service, uh, you know, women who were part of the social service. They all went in to try to, that was the word, recover the women. And this was done, according to them, as part of the idea that these are Hindu women, the Hindu state needs to recover them. And Pakistan said they are women, we need to recover them. They were not looking at them as women sufferers, but, you know, the community that they belong to. Now, the, this writing on the abducted woman has very rightly drawn our attention to their plight, particularly to those who were married and had children. Because very often what happened is that when they were recovered, quote unquote, by state agencies, it meant another round of uprooting. And it meant they would often leave behind their children, say in the case of a Hindu woman in Pakistan, with the husband's family, because they were worried that once they went back home to their parents' family, they would not be accepted. And here I did want to add that there was this extra issue of what we call pollution, uh, as for, you know, when it comes to Hinduism, the idea that the woman had been polluted because of her liaison uh, with a Muslim man. So it was not surprising that they were worried about this. There were many cases which, and many films recently have been made on this. On the other hand, it could be the case that the state was under pressure from the community to recover abducted women and they acted accordingly. I'm just giving one example. This is of a lady, Janak. She was abducted in 1947 and recovered 10 years later. And her brother brought her out with the help of the Indian Army, 1957, as late as that. She came away with her brother, leaving her children behind. As I said, she was pretty sure that her children would not be accepted by her brother and his family here. Her past in Pakistan for those 10 years stood erased, as it were. I grew up knowing her as a spinster aunt. 
She worked in a school, you know, and I learned of her story from my mother only when I badgered my mother about her not knowing any women survivors. I said to her, how is it, you know, that you are a, my mother, my parents also were refugees at the time of partition. Um, and I said, how come you don't know anybody? You claim you didn't suffer, but how come there's nobody else? And then she told me, she said, well, you know, don't mention this. I haven't used the, her name and all that, of course. But she said that this is how, you know, this is her story. Also, women were not always victims. They were agents exercising control over their lives and when placed in new contexts, facing challenges. There are, this brings me to a very important aspect of my presentation today, which is about Holocaust violence. And can it work? You know, it's a question I'd raised right in the beginning. Can it work as a paradigm for the violence of partition, for example. Now, the historians of partition, I mentioned Pandey, Urvashi Batali, and others, they have often taken the Holocaust as a reference point, basically because they've taken it as the scale of violence. That's what they're talking about. And Elie Wiesel, his book, and the whole idea of bearing witness, that it is your duty as a survivor to bear witness and, you know, for the rest of the community and for mankind. That whole idea, plus Pierre Nora's idea of the Lilieu, the memoir, the sites uh, of memory, this was something which was very much brought in. So this came from the Holocaust and remembering in this whole paradigm got very much counterposed to silence. That is, Urvashi Butalia called her book The Other Side of Silence. Pandey called his book Remembering Partition and the first page talks about how the state and the imposed need to forget. So that is what the whole argument was that these voices have been suppressed. People have not, their voices have not, the silence is something which has been imposed. I have, I, I would argue that there is a kind of dialectic between remembering and forgetting. It's not as simple as silence and then the other side of silence. Silence and forgetting are often strat uh, strategies of coping and surviving at a certain point of time. Later on, this can change. Um, this idea also came to me when I was teaching a course on histories of nationalism and I was uh, one of the readings I had was Ernest Renan, the 19th century philosopher, who has this wonderful essay called What is a Nation? And uh, one of the points that he, that Renan makes, he says that, you know, he's talking about France and France had, you know, the medieval period in France was, it was, you know, sort of, um, they had so many massacres, particularly in the South. And he said, for the country to hang together, you have to forget, you have to learn to forget about those uncomfortable parts of your past. This was very different from the importance of remembering, you know? So this idea that there can be silence as a strategy of coping. So it was not silence versus remembering, but a movement between remembering and forgetting in both directions, depending on the needs of the situation. And here I'm invoking Veena Das, 
Veena Das, who's one of our finest anthropologists and who in a very beautiful work called Life in Words, Violence and the Descent into the Ordinary has written about this, where she says, she reminds us again that the monuments of memory which were built to the Shoah, to the Jewish Holocaust, that before that, a long period of silence had to be gone through. Debate over its historical significance and its place in the heritage of the West developed very slowly. So it's about stages. This also came home to me in an interview I had done with a very famous Hindi short story writer called Bhitram Sani. And he wrote this book on Tamas. And this book was basically about his own life. He had been um, a, a, an activist of the Congress party in 1947. And um, this was an interview over, you know, over television. And I said to him, the obvious first question, Bhishamji, you were there, you saw it all, you were an eyewitness. Why did you take a quarter century to write this novel? And he had a very simple answer. He said, I couldn't have written it a day earlier. There was a lot of coming to terms that had to be gone through. So 25 years coming to terms with what had happened. So, you know, the whole idea of what the, the importance, as I said, of silence and then moving from silence uh, to remembering, this kind of dialectic, etc. Bina Das is one of those who is very much, as I said, I'm invoking her to as part of this argument where she says that we just cannot take the model of trauma and witnessing from the Holocaust and transport it to other contexts in which violence has been embedded in very different patterns of sociality. And when we say about violence embedded in different patterns of sociality, what I have in mind is how villains and victims, how the whole understanding is so different. And this hit me, this was 2012, I visited the very fantastic Holocaust Museum in Washington DC. And I came away with the sense that whereas in the case of the Holocaust, the perpetrators, that is the Nazis, they were a clearly recognizable group. That is, here are the villains and here are the victims, the Jews. In the case of the Indian partition, the lines between the villains and the victims were blurred. As I said earlier, a particular com community, a member from a particular community could be a perpetrator in one region, he could be a victim in another. This blurring of lines struck me very sharply when I read Mahmood Mamdani's path-breaking work called When Victims Become Killers, writing about Rwanda. And Mamdani discusses the violence in Rwanda and actually himself he notes the similarity with the Indian partition. I'm just talking two lines from this, not the whole thing. What is he emphasizing? He said, the Rwandan genocide was not carried out from a distance. It was executed with the slash of machetes rather than the drop of crystals. And goes on to talk about a minister from the patriotic front-led government who contrasts the two, what happened in Germany and what happened in Rwanda. And he says, 
the Jews were taken out and killed, and the word, important word is, almost anonymously. In Rwanda, your neighbors killed you. If you talk to people from the Indian partition, it was always about the neighbors killing you. You know, this is the stories that we grew up with. It's always, oh, we don't know what happened to this man. He was absolutely fine till a day ago, and then this happened. So one can conclude then that maybe a concept like that of the popular genocide, which Mamdani puts forward, might help us to understand the Indian partition better than the perspective which comes through Holocaust studies. Another very big difficulty that we had when we talked about, looked at our oral history projects of partition was that was the scale, the financial support that the Shoah had. Steven Spielberg, star donors, you know, the works. And most important, there was trained psychiatrists who were assisting survivors in giving their telling a cathartic healing turn. And this was something which set me thinking about remembering. Could one remember in a way which was therapeutic? But in our case, very often what happened was that wounds were opening up. Wounds were opening up which we had no way of doing anything about this because we were untrained. We were just going around with, with tape recorders or telephones or whatever and just recording experiences. So this anxiety came that, okay, if for a person silence had been a sanctuary, if forgetting had been a way of coping with that tragedy and with that survival, then can we go on talking about the other side of silence, as was being done, as I said here. So silence as sanctuary, this again, my mother, I remember, a historian of partition whom I knew very well, she was at Cambridge and she came along to India and she said, do you know anybody I can talk to? I said, why don't you go and talk to my mother? She has no stories of her own. They came away very safely, but she'll put you in touch with somebody. But my mother decided to give her a story. And this episode of uh, my mother talking to Swarna actually left two very contradictory bits of uh, feelings for us, those kind of uh, messages. The first was our feeling that our mother hadn't shared our father's involvement in the communal riots in Lahore in 1947 with us. We only knew that he was used to vote for the Jansang, but then so did everybody else in the refugee colony that we grew up in Delhi, but nothing more than that. But my mother had this story about how a group which was of RSS activists, which were returning from burning a village on the outskirts of Lahore, and these were everyday happenings in the month of May 1947, that he gave them shelter, this group, and then they went early in the morning. And my mother found out and then she created a furor and she said, next time this happens, I'm walking out, etc. But this was something we didn't know. She had not told us all these years. The other message, and this is the message more important for us here today, is that she was quite uneasy after the recording of this story. So perhaps telling stories of partition wasn't as easy as it was with our freedom storytellers. You know, where we felt that, oh, we had 
you know, this woman by talking to us had got agency and etc. etc. Maybe old wounds opened up. Perhaps silence had been a sanctuary. So there was a worrying kind of thing which came to her mind. Um, this brings me to uh, some work which I did here at the Hub, uh, which was on the oral histories of uh, uh, partition of the Irish Troubles, actually. And here, looking at some of the oral history projects, uh, one very interesting one was called Healing Through Remembering. That was a group. And so the idea was, well, no, stories of partition can be told in a way that would bring people together, that would help them make peace with the past. And that's what I got from the experience of these community council level oral history projects and archives. As I said, one the very name of one of them was Healing Through Remembering. There were many others, the Ardoin Commemoration Project. Uh, Anna is here, I'm not going to talk about it much. The Falls Community Council was another such oral history archive which I found very interesting, based as it was in working class, nationalist, conflict-ridden Belfast. And I went up to Falls Road in the summer of 2016, and then again last summer as part of our Crisis of Democracy project. And it was fascinating the way the stories you know, you had Republican um, interpreters of the stories and you had people who were the, from the unionist side and it was exactly as if there were two different things that had been said. But I just found the whole experience, something was, you know, really very interesting. Walking down Falls Road, the Peace Wall, the, the green bars, green buntings, the Sinn Féin office and the huge murals of Bobby Sands. One aspect of the oral histories of the Irish Troubles, which I found was, was interesting for our work on the Indian partition, was the recognition of that public storytelling was something which was important. So it wasn't about catharsis only, that you told your story and you know, you lived on peace with it. But there was this understanding that no, like one of the victims uh, sister said, oh, it's important to speak about my brother's death so that everybody knows that the system was complicit in the tragedy. So the impact of storytelling goes beyond individual healing to societal transformation. In fact, Gra uh, Graham Dawson, who I thought was a wonderful book uh, called Making Peace with the Past, Trauma Memory in Northern Ireland. So where he comes up with this term called reparative remembering, which I think again is such an important thing. There are so many examples which were of, um, you know, of um, oral history projects. I'm, I'm happy to take questions. I just found this on the internet. I thought it was interesting. On the one hand, there is all this thing about come out and talk, share. And on the other hand, it's this kind of poster, which shows you the bitterness and the hostility, which says, lose talk, cost lives. Whatever you say, say nothing. So it was a kind of this thing. Well, I'm just ending with the closure, the need for closure. And here I would say that it's not important. It's not enough to just tell the story. Somewhere I think it's linked with 
that we have never stopped to grieve. And this is something, again, I came across a lot in the Irish examples. Member of a victim support group wave saying, we were part of a culture where you did not tell your stories. I'm sure many of you recognize this. I recognize it in India. My father never ever spoke about what had happened in his life. Every time I be asked him, he said, I have to go on with the business of living. Right? You know, so one can understand this. Another respondent, again, saying, I certainly never grieve properly because I was out there being busy and I never stopped to actually grieve. So these are from Northern Ireland during the Troubles, but they are absolutely true of the Indian partition. Every family will have a story of a parent or a grandparent who had a memory which left her uncomfortable, which she was unable to share with someone and let go. Sometimes it was only death which freed that person with a deathbed confession to witnessing a crime, being part of a killing, or worse. So I'm just ending by saying that I think closure then is not only about telling, it's about grieving too. Mourning and mourning collectively has certainly been very much part of our culture. And we haven't yet mourned the dead. We haven't yet mourned our dead, certainly not the dead from the partition. This is a picture, it's a little lopsided, but it's of a group of women. These are Punjabi women. They are you know, wearing almost exactly what I'm wearing, this black salwar kameez, as you can see. And this would be, she's, you know, this would be covered, the head covered like this. And you would typically do this when you went into a place where somebody had died. You covered your head and you went in. And the, that gesture like that and the, the mouth, it's, and if you look at them, they're all like identical. You just sit very closely together and then there's a wail which will come forward. One person will start to wail and then the others would add to that. And this is what I found absolutely fascinating when it comes to connected histories. I mean, I know every experience is unique, but when I was sharing this here, um, somebody got up and some one of the girls in the room and said, she came and gave me a CD about keening, you know? And the whole thing was the older woman coming up, setting this wailing and the public grief. I don't know yet what other meanings it has, but certainly, you know, as I said, on the face of it, it seemed like there were cross-cultural associations which were very much out there for us to make something of. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for a really powerful lecture. <clears throat> I like this idea that every experience is unique. Our uh, experience that uh, gave the impetus to this lecture series in 1922 was a unique Irish moment, but we have been insufficient in connecting it and the way you're connecting uh, uh, with the Irish uh, experience in the closing of the lecture is uh, uh, going to open up a lot of discussion. I love lectures where uh, somebody can speak about such complex issues, um, history and memory, 
remembering and forgetting villains and victims, these uh, binaries that are not in fact binaries and really complicate them. And then you do it with such clarity that we really uh, think that it's a simple matter how you've uh, laid it out for us. In fact, these are very uh, uh, difficult and complex and yet you've, you've really helped us think through them this evening. So um, I'm going to now invite uh, our second speaker uh, to respond. Uh, this, uh, Dr. Anna Bryson is Senior Lecturer in the School of Law in uh, Queens, uh, in Belfast. She's led we're leading two projects uh, funded by the ESRC, uh, and the titles of them will immediately make it apparent how her research connects with the theme this evening. Apologies, abuses, and dealing with the past is one. Lawyers, conflict, and transition is another. I know that Anna's been very closely involved in uh, developing at a policy level how we deal with the past and issues of oral history and practice and so on. So please uh, welcome Anna Bryson. Okay, thanks very much, uh, Peter, um, and thanks really both to Jane and Peter together with the uh, Sujeta for inviting me to join in the discussion this evening. Um, I think uh, Sujeta's paper has very helpfully teased out indeed some of the shared opportunities and challenges that underscore post-conflict oral history work in Ireland and in India. So in the course of the next 10 minutes or so, I'll try to add to that discussion Firstly, by giving you a very brief uh, overview of some of the oral history work I've been involved in in recent years, and in particular, as Peter alluded to uh, there at the end, uh, the work that I've been involved in around debates uh, about creating an oral history archive as part of the Stormont House Agreement. Um, so very briefly then, um, since completing a PhD in oral history here at Trinity um, a, a long time ago, I've worked on a number of large-scale projects, all with an oral history component, the first focused on Irish political prisoners 1920 to 2000. That was underpinned by archival work really, but complemented by 160 lengthy interviews. From there, I went on to work on an EU funded project called the Peace Process Layers of Meaning. Again, oral history was central. We had an oral history archive of 100 interviews. And it was quite interesting because it was trying to document uh, both from above and from below. So deliberately juxtaposing interviews with household names, your Bertie Ahearns and so forth, juxtaposing that with interviews with fire and rescue personnel, with homemakers, with educators, with people you know who had lived through the conflict, uh, if you like, at ground level. Um, now, six years ago, I moved with my family to Belfast and took a job at Queen's working on one of the projects Peter mentioned, uh, Lawyers in Conflict and Transition. And again, there was a significant interview component to that project. Um, it operates across six countries around the world, but the aim was to conduct 120 interviews with um, struggle lawyers, cause lawyers and others um, linked to that theme. Now, my interviewing experience, coupled, I think, in hindsight with a fair dash of chutzpah, was it enabled me to persuade a team of lawyers that what Queen's Law School really needed was an oral historian. But they took me on and since then I've been working at carving out a career at the interface of oral history and what my legal colleagues would term transitional justice. So, as most of you know then, to turn to this Stormont House Agreement, the work that we've been developing around that, um, you mentioned uh, you know, the issue of silence, Yashada, and the issues that you know, perhaps sometimes we have to avoid as a coping mechanism. And I think in many ways dealing with the past was one of those issues that at the time of the Good Friday Agreement was just too hot to handle. We couldn't really get agreement at that point on a package of measures to deal with the past. 
And instead, since then, what we've had is a very piecemeal approach to dealing with the past. So issues cranking through the courts, inquests, civil actions. You know, we've had uh, reports from the office of the Ombudsman and so on and so forth, individual inquiries. And there's been numerous attempts to try and pull it all together. We had Eames Bradley, Hassel Sullivan and so forth. But the latest attempt to, to agree a suite of measures that could more holistically deal with the legacy of conflict was agreed in late 2014 by the British and Irish governments and the five main parties. And I think interestingly for our purposes this evening, that included in the suite of mechanisms was, as we expected, a prosecutorial mechanism, so the Historical Investigations Unit, the ICIR, the Independent Commission for Information Retrieval, so that victims could get information about how their loved ones died and so forth, um, an Implementation and Reconciliation Group, and then, as I say, for our purposes, interestingly, a fourth key mechanism was an oral history uh, archive. Now, that was designed to provide a central place for people from all backgrounds and from throughout the UK and Ireland to share experiences and narratives relating to the Troubles. Now, what was signed off in that agreement was really just heads of agreement, enabling legislation as necessary to give effect uh, to the mechanisms. And knowing from past experience that the devil would be in the detail, a senior colleague of mine who'd been working around these issues for many years, Kieran McAvoy, decided to assemble a team of academics to begin to thrash out what the enabling legislation um, would look like in practice for us to reflect on the clauses necessary to ensure that these mechanisms would be both human rights compliant and adhering to international best practice. And I came on board to work on the oral history archive. So we engaged a parliamentary draft person with experience of drafting legislation at Westminster to work with us to develop legislation. So we were essentially working shoulder to shoulder with the NIO. So they were working away on the legislation, preparing to put it out to public consultation. And we thought we, it would discipline us to look clause by clause at what was necessary, um, you know, as we saw, to have the kind of optimal uh, legislation that we would like to see in practice. It also forced us to try and grapple with complex legal and political issues underpinning all of this. And part of our aim was to sort of demystify some of those issues and to produce clear, jargon-free reports for civil society groups, for victims' organisations, to help them arrive at, kind of at, their, at, at positions on these issues from as informed a position as possible. And in the course of that work, we had dozens of meetings with officials at the DFA, with officials in the NIO and the legacy team, with politicians, victims' organisations, and in the course of my own work, of course, with oral historians and archivists. And in the end, we produced a 50-page model bill uh, and launched it at the House of Lords in 2015. And what that meant was that when the NIO put their bill out last year for public consultation, we were able to come back very quickly with a detailed 160-page response. These are complex issues. We had 40 pages on the oral history archive and critique it in detail, looking at, at what we felt were the strengths and weaknesses. Now, in terms of strengths and weaknesses, just to come uh, to the nub of it, the oral history archive, I suppose the opportunities that I tend to highlight would very much kind of complement uh, what, what uh, the issues that Chisera has been talking about. So I would have tended to emphasise that legalistic approaches to dealing with the past tend to operate in a very fragmentary case-by-case -case basis, cater for a limited number of people, not all of whom wish to pursue justice through the courts, 
But in my experience, just as you were saying, I think that most people do value an opportunity to be heard. Um, and indeed, I think it can have that kind of cathartic element that you spoke about. So in the case of, of my own experience, I know that I've been really touched and surprised to know that some of the people I've interviewed have, have one of them died with a transcript beside his bed. His family member told me he kept it by his bed. I know in another instance, someone read from the transcript of the life story at the funeral. So it really does matter hugely to individuals to have that opportunity. I suppose I've also uh, been uh, drawing attention to the fact that we can reach out, as you said, on her voices and explore hitherto uh, sort of neglected aspects of her past history. So I have a particular interest in gender dimensions. And just to cut across to the project on lawyers for a second, I was really struck doing field research in South Africa on that lawyers project. You know, we're all familiar with the discontents now 20 years on from the Constitution and, and the kind of the, 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 the real discontent that we documented around what hadn't been delivered. Um, and in particular, um, I was struck in talking to some of the female struggle lawyers about their sense of the kind of, um, the way in which the narrative on the past has been skewed. And, and what they were drawing my attention to particularly was the story of sort of black female uh, struggle lawyers and indeed Indian lawyers, and that, that they had been somewhat written out of that. And this is where you talked about kind of getting to that, away from that history from below. But I guess I'm taking it a little bit further and pushing us to be careful about, you know, getting beneath that again. You know, so where you can document your freedom narratives, but we need to be always alert, you know, to sort of pushing out beyond that. So an issue that they felt had been neglected was, for example, the issue of domestic violence. They thought there was a deafening silence even within the ranks of struggle lawyers who are eulogised, let's face it, in South Africa. They say that's a bit of our history that hasn't been told. And that would have resonated for me with my experience of working with our prison service, our police service, paramilitary organisations, community families. And I feel that if done sensitively, this oral history archive could help us to shine a little bit of light on some of those kind of darker corners of our past. There's an ability to get to rural perspectives with the very Belfast-centric um, uh, history of the past in many ways, and indeed intergenerational perspectives. So I think the longevity of the oral history archive makes it stand out from these other mechanisms that are necessarily time-bound. And then as historians, that's what we can do. We can facilitate the longer view and, and those kind of debates that can percolate over time around you know, negotiating memory and revisiting when the time is right. Because it's not always, as you said, people need to come to this at, a t at the time and place that's right for them, perhaps after the periods of silence that are necessary in some instances. Um, and, I, and I think then, obviously, when we get to talking about reconciliation, I think providing opportunities to hear the other, to get out of the silos, because a lot of this work does tend to happen in silos, can help us to, to sort of break down those simplistic uh, narratives about who done what and when to more complex causation analysis. I mean, that's all well and good, but there are lots and lots of challenges, as we know. So I suppose to, to highlight some of those for a moment or two, in spite of the Boston College tapes controversy, there was, I think, a misguided assumption that the OHA would be the easiest, the least contentious of these mechanisms to implement. And nothing, I think, could be further from the truth. Because the battle to win the narrative of the past is in many ways for us a continuation of the conflict by other means. Some elements within unionism in particular are obsessed about this issue of no rewriting of the past. We can have no rewriting of the past. 
And that gave rise to a commitment to create a factual statistical timeline of the Troubles as part of the OHA, the Oral History Archives work. But to me, I worry that that could be quite a reductionist and almost dehumanising approach that goes against the grain of what I feel this Oral History Archive could achieve. So as stated in the conclusion to a report I worked on with Ian McBride and others, we really felt that the purpose of that timeline was unclear. And as I said, we wanted to get instead to complex questions of causation and responsibility, not just who fired the first shot and when. But thinking about reasons why this has been so divisive for us is of course this issue that you highlighted around the fact that we have no clear winners and losers. And for us, that's probably most sharply underlined in the ongoing row about the definition of a victim. So for us then, the battle lines tend to get drawn around whose stories will get heard. So this official legislation proposed that individuals would be invited to come forward and give their story. But I kept trying to impress on officials that the notion that a gong would sound and an orderly queue is going to form in the Titanic Quarter, representative of all of the different victims' organisations and so on, is naive. And Paul Thompson cautioned us about this decades ago, about a lazy reliance on self-selection. You get the middle groups in society coming forward, but you have got to work damned hard to get out to those unheard voices and to encourage them to come forward. I think there's also fears abounding that Republicans are better at getting their story out, a fear that the oral history archive will be flooded with accounts that retrospectively glorify violence. I think that's somewhat overstated. Um, I think you, you listed some of those organisations at community level that have done some of the most courageous, actually, oral history work, taking on the task of collecting awkwardly individual accounts, both from within their own community and reaching across to others. I think also there's a little bit of a danger of overcorrection. So in an effort to avoid collecting what might be called extreme accounts and to privilege moderate opinion, we could end up with a house like my mother's painted in that ever popular shade of beige known as Magnolia. And that's not necessarily <laughs> rounded either. So I think also thinking of challenges, a very obvious issue for us, I touched on Boston there a, a moment ago, is the fact that we don't have an amnesty or a statute of limitations. That's just a reality and it limits uh, the work that we do. Now the dangers of prosecution, you might say, were dimmed um, by the ruling last week in the Ivor Bell case, but nonetheless, without a statute of limitations or an amnesty, and the, and the live risk of prosecution, there is a danger both for interviewers and for interviewees and indeed for third parties uh, that are mentioned. And that certainly has had a chill factor undoubtedly in terms of the work uh, that we've been involved in. I think the issue around traumatising people as well, Sujata, you, you mentioned. Um, I was interested to hear you talk about the life story approach of mitigating that. And I think it can go a certain... Uh, amount of the way towards kind of mitigating the danger of re-traumatising people and just uh, forcing them to focus on specific... Yes, but I think usefully when you came to talk about the partition archives you were really addressing later on, you know, how it becomes more problematic when you get to some of these more difficult accounts. And I'm not sure that um, the life story approach is enough. I think there are other issues that we can talk about that in discussion, maybe around the ethics of all of this. But another danger, I think, just to, to sort of bounce across to it, is the danger of reinventing the wheel. Because lawyers have an instinct to litigate, right? Surgeons like to cut. Or historians love to collect stories, right? More, more, more. The country is awash with valuable material. And I think that some of these resources, a lot of these resources, should be pumped into shoring up the material that is already there. 
And you touched on healing through your memory, and I work uh, with the Stories Network that's part of that organisation. It's an umbrella group for over 40 uh, oral history groups. And quite a lot of these uh, organisations felt quite threatened by the prospect of this oral history archive. It's what I refer to as the Tesco or Walmart effect. You know, the idea that this new archive is coming to town and all the resources will accrue there. So briefly then, because I know Peter, you asked me to keep to 10 minutes and I don't want to go over time. In terms of solutions or mitigating or meeting some of these challenges, I suppose addressing that ever difficult issue of trust, I have tended to emphasise the fact that I feel this, this oral history archive that's proposed for us needs to be independent. Now, the proposal in the draft official legislation the NIO put out last year proposed to park the oral history archive in the Public Records Office of Northern Ireland. In some ways, it was a civil servant's answer to a civil service servant problem, I felt. You know, it, was, it, it seemed like, uh, in some ways, an obvious place to park it. But the difficulty we have when we get to look at the governance of that is that Prony is run by, the, it's an archaic term, a deputy keeper. But the issue for us is that the, the deputy keeper's keeper is the minister, the minister for communities. And that raises problems for us around the kind of independence of the archive. And I won't go into all of the detail around kind of ways in which we try to develop a governance model that would, would really sort of safeguard the independence of it. Um, but I feel that that is utterly crucial. And now the NIO tell us they are on the back of that consultation open to looking at other models, perhaps the Linen Hall Library or a joint operation between the two, gov the two governments, the two universities, uh, the two main universities uh, in the north. I think um, in terms of the governance model, the other thing I would highlight is the need for an independent steering group comprised of individuals with the necessary skill set. And this is where you talked about the Holocaust, the resources, where there is a need to bring together archivists, oral historians, together with people who have expertise in dealing with trauma, together with those who work with and through victims' organisations. And I think that that is crucially important as well. The need for a flexible approach then as well, addressing that issue I mentioned of working with and through existing groups. We need a flexible approach that empowers rather than threatens those groups that are already doing good work. And here I came to something like a hub and spokes model. And I looked to the digitization of public libraries in America as an example of an aggregator model where you have an opportunity to try and work with and through existing libraries on the ground in a way that empowers them and doesn't threaten their existence. And I think it's that type of a hub and spokes approach that we need to be looking at if we're going to kind of uh, really optimize the benefits of this archive. And I'll finish with this because that gets me thinking about the need to accommodate a very broad range of approaches to oral history. It is a very broad church. And I think in, in, in my own experience in recent years, I really feel that some of the most interesting and courageous work has been done at the interface of oral history and the creative arts. So I'm thinking of theatres of witness, verbatim uh, testimonies that have been performed. I mean, when we can discuss where oral history ends and that kind of work begins, but certainly around some of the very real problems we face around the dangers of prosecution, the, the, the grave difficulties of opening up some of these difficult and taboo subjects I mentioned, I have seen some very interesting and I think encouraging work done at that level. And I'll just leave that there as one perhaps, perhaps more hopeful thought about different ways in which we can begin to kind of work our way um, through some of these shared uh, challenges. So I hope that has added a little bit to the discussion and um, I'm happy to take questions. Wonderful.
I must thank uh, Sean and Sarah Reynolds, whose generosity has made this series possible across these three years. And also on personal behalf, thank the amazing team at the Long Room Hub, Francesca, Aoife, Eva, Peter, uh, Jane and Katrina, of course, Jane's at the back there, um, uh, uh, and um, would want me to thank the team who are absolutely incredible. And maybe you'll just all join me in thanking two incredible speakers on a wonderful discussion.